The first week of August in 1974, I went on vacation with my mom and my dad and my brother to visit my dad's adoptive parents, my grandparents, in my dad's hometown of Fremont, Ohio. I was eight years old. Had never been to my dad's hometown before. Had a lot of fun that week. And yet, the one thing I remember in detail is the night of Thursday, August 8, 1974. The Waltons were on TV, and I loved the Waltons. I'll still watch three episodes in a row if I catch it on someone's cable. Loved the Waltons, even as eight-year-old kid. So I remember distinctly this was a Thursday night, August 8th, because I watched the Waltons. And then I got to stay up. I never got to stay up past the Waltons. And later I realized my parents had been arguing about whether or not to let me stay up. Because following the Waltons at 9 o'clock that night, the President of the United States came on TV. And my dad sat down on the floor in the living room where I was sitting with me. And he said, I need you to pay attention to this. And I remember the president being on. And it seemed like it went on for hours and was so boring. Could I just go to bed? I wasn't getting up to stay up to watch the movie. So could I just go to bed watching the president's boring and when it was done, there was a lot of shuffling and quiet and rumbling among my parents and grandparents. That much I remember. But I was confused. I really wasn't following what the president said. So I said, what did he say? And my dad said he quit. The president is going to quit being the president. Why? Because he broke the law and he got caught. So he needs to stop being the president. My dad was really emotional. My dad was of the gender and of the generation that any emotion that wasn't happy usually came out as anger. And I could see my dad getting angry and trying to control it, stomping around the house a little bit as we got put to bed. And I remember him looking at me in the face, agitated and saying, this is not good. This is going to change everything. From now on, it's going to be like right and wrong don't matter, and all that's going to count is not getting caught. And my dad looked at me and he said, but I need you to know right and wrong still matter. Right and wrong always matter. Some years later, when I learned about Nixon's resignation in history class at school, I learned that part of what he said was, by taking this action, I hope that I will have hastened the start of the process of healing, which is so desperately needed in America. One month to the day, I believe, after Nixon resigned, the new president got on TV. And I remember my dad making me watch the news. I hated watching the news. So boring. 
My dad gave, gave me again one of those dad speeches. You need to pay attention to this. This is important. I watched the president again. And I didn't get what he said again. And I asked my dad, what'd he say? And he said, he forgave the other president. He's not going to send him to jail. Is that good? <laughs> my dad said, I don't know. I don't know. I remember asking him, but forgiving people is good, right? Yes, I remember him saying, yeah, it is. And here we are, 44 summers later, days before an election for President of the United States. And right and wrong and principle still matter. And healing and forgiveness still matter. Today, I'm going to focus on the principle. Next Sunday, I'm going to talk about the healing. Eric Liu, who was once assistant to President Bill Clinton for domestic policy, says that America is trying to do something that has never been done before in the history of the world, which is to build a mass, multicultural, democratic republic. Throughout history, societies have been able to achieve one or two or three of these things, but never all four. There have been democratic republics that are not multicultural. In fact, a lot of people now today point to Scandinavian countries as mass democratic republics that are widely successful, but they're largely monocultural, for example. And I believe that we inside Unitarian Universalism are also trying to engage this experiment. Our faith is trying to create a mass, multicultural, democratic, republican faith. Also, something that has never been successfully done for the long term in human history. So much so are we intertwined with the larger civic process that one of our Chief principles is participation in the democratic process. We are intertwined. What makes us good citizens and what makes us good members of our congregation in this tradition are the same thing. Well, what does make us good participants in the life of our faith community, in the life of our civic community? The most important, I think, is participation itself. The church and the world are run by those who show up. Eric Liu is now the director of a project called Citizen University, a project that teaches the art of citizenship. And their first lesson is vote. Eric Liu says, voting generates the power we always say we wish we had. It gives us the say that determines things. But if we don't participate, we don't get the full value of that power. 
He says, imagine what would happen if we had 100% voting participation of a mass multicultural democracy. Our policy priorities and the candidates we put forth would change virtually overnight because everyone's voice would be included. And a lot of the voices that don't get included currently in democracy are the voices of those who are the least, the last, the lost, the left out, the forgotten, the oppressed. Those who don't count. And the greatest struggle we always have is to include those who don't count. And to say that first lesson of democracy is everyone counts. Our vote today here will be a vote on whether or not everyone counts. Imagine a world where everyone showed up to count and had their voice heard. Most of our most pressing problems would be well under their way to solution. Democracy and drama arise almost simultaneously in ancient Greece. And I would argue they're both a creative, participatory process. Democracy is the process by which we create and transform that which we wish to be. And maybe that's the divine. James Luther Adams, as you know, my favorite Unitarian theologian, says God is actually the creative, sustaining, transformative power at the heart of all that is. Whatever that creative, sustaining, and transforming power is, there is your divine. I think it no accident that one of our crucial principles as Unitarian Universalists is participation in the democratic, creative, transforming, sustaining process. Eric Liu says, evolutionarily, it's interesting that the human society is most chiefly based on the basic law of survival, law of the jungle, survival of the fittest, kill off the weak, aren't the ones that end up thriving. Interestingly enough, he points out, the human societies that end up thriving, not just existing a long time, but thriving, healthy, vibrant, are the ones where citizens are not consumers or pawns or just dissatisfied customers. Citizens in the, in the societies that thrive are part of a messy, inclusive relational process. And we've already noted, I've noted in sermons before, systems that are inclusive are resilient. Systems that get stuck tend to be autocratic and totalitarian and one-dimensional. They may make the trains run on time, but they're going to get stuck. Democracy and its relationality with all its messy imperfectness is able to be more flexible and respond to crisis. And my friends, I think it no news to you that we may in fact be facing a crisis of democracy itself. 
Good thing we have a system that's messy and complicated and needs relationality and it's resilient. Eric Liu says, everyday participation in democracy is a program and a plan for revolution. Because if we have 100% high participation, our priorities are constantly evolving to meet our actual true needs. And he makes a point that I find fascinating. He says, most of the time, leaders in our current practice of democracy are not leaders, but they are followers. They are followers of the groups who tend to show up the most to participate. What if those who haven't been showing up were included? Then our leaders would be following the real majority of people who may have vastly different priorities than the vocal minorities who show up. I saw this happen firsthand when I did a lot of work on the mass equalities campaign to guarantee marriage equality in Massachusetts. What won that battle, and it's a fascinating study in relationality, was mass equalities, massive, extensive campaign to just get gay families to go visit their state representatives. Family after family, person after person, couple after couple marched into the representative's office. Because the representatives and the senators were hearing a lot of feedback about marriage equality, but it was all from the well-organized, negative, oppressive, exclusionary side. And once mass equality mass mobilized the vast majority of, of opinion in Massachusetts, the elected representatives changed their tune. But we were kind of complacent at the beginning of that struggle. Like, oh yeah, it's a no-brainer, everybody should be able to get married, whatever. And I went knocking on doors and people would tell me that. I said, yeah, but here's a phone number, you need to call your state rep and let them know that now. If we participate at full volume, we really get heard. And part of this that we're involved with is such an amazing thing Nowhere on earth is a system of democracy and inclusion centered around a center proposition that we, the people, get to decide. To choose not to participate, to choose not to vote, is to say you agree with whatever the result is. Not participating means voting for whoever wins. There's no such thing as not voting. Your participation here, your participation in our community is so vitally important. Never not vote. Always be part of that body that shows up to make the decision. I, I always find it a little interesting when Unitarian Universalists tell me they don't like the word church. Because the word church comes from the Greek word ecclesia. And the Ecclesia in Koine Greek, in classical Greek, in Koine Greek, means the body of citizens that came together in community to make the community's decisions. What are we if not a church, especially in our tradition? So we're going to vote, and we're going to be part of church. 
And so our next question is, how do we vote? How do we participate in civic life? What governs our individual participation? Well, in the weeks leading up to this election, the Unitarian Universalist Association published a guideline for voting your Unitarian Universalist values. And they said, here are some questions to ask of policy proposals and proposed laws and candidates when thinking about how you want to vote if you're going to live out your Unitarian Universalist values. So I started pondering that. I said, all right, not a bad set of questions. And I started pondering along with two other things that I always fall back on when I'm trying to figure stuff out. One is the precepts of Buddhism. And I love Diane Rizzotto's version of them you heard today in one of the readings because she cast them all as positives. Instead of refraining from anger, she says, I take up the way of not letting anger control me, right? She recast them all as positive statements. I take up the way of being such a way instead of I refrain from being the opposite. So I really like those, and I, I consider those a lot. And I consider our five smooth stones of liberal religion, that revelation is not sealed and we're always learning, that there's no such thing as the immaculate conception of virtue, that it's our job to create beloved community. Good things don't just happen. That relationships should be based on mutual consent, not coercion and that there are always enough resources within us and around us, divine and human, to justify us having hope. So if I take those things together and I look at choices before me, how does that affect how I participate? Well, I tend to ask myself, do candidates and policy proposals and proposed laws reflect the idea that everyone has inherent dignity and worth? Does what's proposed create a situation where we meet each other on equal ground? Not tolerate each other, meet each other on equal ground. Is what's proposed treat people in such a way that they recognize the humanity of everyone and the relationship is based on relationship and engagement and consent and not some type of coercion implied or explicit? Love is the spirit of this church. How does love include? Is what's proposed or does a candidate's proposals or ideas discriminate in any way on the basis of sex or race or gender or gender expression or physical ability or romantic orientation or religion or language in any way that would somehow make their human dignity less inherent and less worthy? Are there ways in which the proposed policy or law or candidate belittles others, making them into other, therefore less worthy and with less dignity? In a sense, does the policy or law or the person of the candidate Hold love as the highest value. Do, do they, does it answer the call of love? I think to myself, if elected, how would this person's everyday decisions demonstrate justice and equity and compassion in human relationship and society? 
How would what's proposed take up the way of letting go of making decisions based on fear and anger? How would it work specifically to establish the religious community, the beloved community? We have a responsibility to create beloved community. And how would the law or the policy or the person contribute to that? I think, does a candidate encourage acceptance and growth in other people, even across party and ideological lines? Does the person, does the law encourage ways of speaking of others with openness and possibility instead of dismissiveness and derision? I want, to, I want to know what's the evidence that some other person or the people who have crafted a policy have taken on their own search for truth and meaning and are able to communicate that. And maybe perhaps what is our faith tradition's greatest contribution at this time in our history to the public conversation. Do they participate with a clear mind? Do they value science and the insights of reason? Because we've reached a point in my lifetime where we're starting to act as if there are no such thing as facts, just different opinions. And everyone is entitled to their own opinion, but no one's entitled to make up their own facts. That's why they're facts. So, you know, I look at a policy's such as environmental policy and global warming, you can choose not to believe in global warming. But we got numbers, we got science. It's, it's a fact. <laughs> and yet we've reached this place where all we have now is people putting in their own facts, creating their own opinion. And when you dismiss facts, all you've got left is values, right? If there's no objective commonality to see if someone something is so or not, all you've got is your values. And if... You have values very different from each other. It's just a values war. But what if? What if, right? One of our values is reason and science. Surprisingly, that stops us from falling into the idolatry of the mind or spirit that says facts are worthless. One of our values helps compensate for only falling into values as a source of decision-making. Perhaps the greatest thing we can offer right now from our faith values is that perspective. And the facts are the facts, even if we don't like them, even if I don't like them, which means giving credit to somebody whose thinking might be different when it's due. How open is a person or a policy to being able to change their mind or change the policy when we learn something new. Because we believe revelation is not sealed. We're in an ongoing learning process. How do we make the process inclusive? Do we want everyone to participate? Or do we want to exclude as many people if their values or their opinion might not line up with ours?
We are all interdependent. We value the interdependent web of all existence. How does a person or a policy recognize that we are interdependent, that all life is not independent but interdependent upon each other? We have the resources we need to justify hope, but not if we all go it alone. Only being interdependent will we find enough resources to justify our hope and our promise. We cannot discount our environment or each other. How does a candidate or a policy reflect that? When it gets down to it, we take a look at our principles and what they might ask of us in our participation in the civic life, and we consider reason, relationship, responsibility, resources. And one of those resources is faith. In order to participate fully in the process, we must have faith in it. And faith isn't magical belief. Faith is trust. We trust in the process to work. We trust in our participation to make it count. We have faith that it will work. We have faith that it will be okay. Today, here in this place, there will be a vote whether or not to be an officially recognized welcoming, radically hospitable congregation. How do we approach that vote? Weighing all those things I've just mentioned, and I just scratched the surface of what voting as a Unitarian Universalist entails. It is no little choice we make today or Tuesday. Right and wrong still matters. Healing still matters. Maybe we put those two together. Maybe a guide to what's right for us to do according to our values is how much healing it brings or how little. Eric Liu says the interesting thing about our democracy is it is a grand experiment that's always in danger of not succeeding because it's messy, difficult, and complicated. We're always at the risk of blowing it, as he says. I think if we've been paying attention to this election season, it's pretty evident. And yet, the fact that it's messy and complicated and requires a lot of relational work is crucial because the reality is it shows us how important that mission, that experiment is. Any mission you cannot fail at is not a mission worth having. And the mission to create a mass, multicultural, democratic republic is certainly a mission worth having. As is creating a radically welcoming congregation. Right and wrong still matters. Healing still matters. Trusting our system 
and each other. We bring our values to vote today and to the polls on Tuesday.